Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Passing Shot. US Open considers switch to Indian Wells. Australian Open considers Aussie fans only in Melbourne. And we consider some of our favourite highlights from Madrid. And welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans, for fans, with your host Joel and Kim. On today's episode, we're going to be continuing our trip down memory lane and looking at some of the biggest and best moments from the Madrid Masters over the years. Elsewhere, we'll be bringing you up to date on some of the key tennis events of the week with the latest on Grand Slam plans for Melbourne and New York. But Kim first, it's a bank holiday weekend. How has it been treating you? Have you been getting out the bunting? Uh, not so much the bunting, Joel, but we have had a, a couple of oversized flags hanging in the windows, uh, which has been nice. And it's been lovely weather. Um, I actually had to work on, on the bank holiday itself. So I had to wait for my PIMS. Uh, I had to wait till I clocked off before I could get open the PIMS. Did you have a nice, did you have a nice relaxing weekend? Yeah, it's been it's been pretty good. And I think as a tennis fan, uh, a British tennis fan, I've been cracking out my great britain flag for kind of bunting purposes so uh i've almost kind of dual purpose my uh my tennis fan sort of past this weekend i have a whole host of flags in my wardrobe that i've like collected at various tennis events like i remember <laughs> when we went to the davis cup in madrid they were giving out all these free flags and i was like oh just i love flags um i don't know if it's because i studied geography i just have this thing for flags but i was just going in wasn't i and getting like the serbian one uh i don't know the french flag oh, and i yes, wasn't I waving remember. them at the time but i was like i'll use that for something i could have just stocked up on all my bunting flags at the davis exactly. cup in madrid should have had v day <laughs> on your mind back in november oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah we we do have some some news that has emerged in the last week from the tennis world, uh, you know, sadly, well, there has been some tennis. There's been a few uh, sort of of those initial kind of exhibition tournaments kind of starting up. Um, but with regards to the Grand Slams and what's going to happen kind of over the next 12 months, we've had firstly the Australian Open, considering whether they could play it next year uh, with just Aussie only fans. So having no international visitors or fans coming from abroad, um, that's depending on if, you know, mass gatherings and big events are still banned, um, which I would say is probably going to be quite likely. I think they really do need to look into this closely. Um, I mean, how do you think that would work, Joel, in reality, What's your thought on only having like local fans there and not anything, anyone from abroad? Yes, the the the, the time when I first heard it, I thought, you know, is this going to be 
you know, bias towards, you know, Aussie tennis players, for example, you know, the fact that it's only going to be, you know, people from Australia who can attend. Um, but I think, you know, this is a, this is a compromise that sadly, you know, I think I, in an ideal world, everyone would be able to kind of go and kind of be a fan. But um, it, this sounds like a compromise, um, almost kind of a halfway meeting point, I think, between like no fans and having, you know, absolutely everyone from every kind of corner of the earth being you know, invited. So um, I think it's interesting that they're kind of exploring this scenario. Um, and, you know, I understand tennis australia they're exploring different scenarios as well but i think this is perhaps probably the most interesting because we've not really heard it before in the context of grand sams we've not heard kind of the us open kind of exploring a you know an american only um event um so you know and and kind of the french open as well so you know i i'm kind of curious to see if if this does happen but you know i think overall my thoughts is i'd rather have this than no grand slam at all and i think most kind of tennis fans would you know would get that but um yeah i do wonder whether you know the the fact that if it if this did happen you know could would this impact sort of would this almost kind of give more of a boost to you know home homegrown local players from australia and would it be a disadvantage to you know the international players i see your point but I mean, I think on the contrary, Joel, I think that Melbourne and Australia, you know, is a very international place and there's lots of um, fans from all over the world already living in Melbourne, for example. So, you know, and they have such a strong kind of diaspora community or the, you know, the Greek Australians come out and like the Bosnians and everyone. So I, I feel like there will still be a lot of atmosphere there and I wouldn't say it's necessarily going to only like bias towards uh, Aussie players. I, I'm sure there would be an element of that, but I don't think it would, um, I don't think it would really make an, perhaps that much difference if you had, I don't know, Federer against, uh, I don't know, Kokonakis or someone. I'm just trying to think of a situation. Um, but also I think generally the atmosphere obviously would be diminished. There would be less people on site. I assume they would have to limit the numbers as well. Uh, you know, have a sort of cut off or a quota for how many could actually attend. Maybe they would have to socially distance them in in the arenas or on the side of the courts. I mean, I don't know how how it'd work. Could you have one person separated by kind of two or three seats, like and stagger them out that way? <laughs> Kim, you know, when we were there, obviously Malik Yaziri versus Caruso, uh, that was that felt socially distanced anyway, didn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, like, you know, Australia, Australian Open, it's such a meeting point for global tennis fans to kind of come together. And, you know, if you've made the trip out there and it will be a real shame to not have that in place for this year. But I think it is like a necessary sacrifice and a compromise that we'll have to just live with um, until things can go back to like the real normal again. Um Interestingly as well, like what would you do with the players who are flying in, obviously, from across the world? Um, if they have a 14-day quarantine period, obviously the players are going to have to go out there at least two weeks before the AO starts. But obviously, generally speaking, they all do that anyway for the warm-up events. So, I mean, I don't know if we're just talking about Australian Open. What about kind of the um, the ATP Cup and all that sort of stuff, so like Sydney? We, we don't really know how it's going to work, whether they would need players to come out two weeks before the start of any tennis in Australia. It's going to have to be ironed out, isn't it, Joel? 
Yeah, it's. I mean, there's all. There's. I think there's lots of different ways to look about. You can look at it from the fan perspective. You can look at it from the player perspective. You know, I think it's interesting to see that. You know, they're they're going to have to. They're looking at scenarios now. You know, they can't just kind of wait until two weeks before the event to make a decision. You know, it's quite clear that with kind of all of the you know the Grand Slam organizers, they're having to make these decisions. Uh, you know, now in order to kind of put everything up in place. Um, you know, to make sure they are kind of you know, fully prepared and, you know, we'll kind of, we'll wait and see what kind of scenario the Australian Open goes down. I think, you know, for me, the other thing that kind of is quite notable is that it seems that all the Grand Slams are are having completely different approaches. You know, there's, there's very little consistency, you know, at one end we've had Wimbledon obviously completely cancelled. French Open have, you know, the French Open has moved their date. And interestingly, we're, you know, we've been reading this week and moving on from the Australian Open to the US Open. Uh, Again, they are considering all kind of options at the moment. Now, you know, a few months ago, they were a bit kind of like the the US Open will not happen without tennis fans. It seems to be that they have kind of backtracked on that and kind of come around to potentially the idea of playing, you know, at Flushing Meadows without any fans. But the other thing that kind of that came up in the news, which I thought was really interesting, was the fact that they might consider moving the US Open from Flushing Meadows to Indian Wells in California. Now, the thinking behind this is that uh, you know, New York, one of the biggest impacted you know, areas, uh, you know, major cities to coronavirus and restrictions being lifted there will take potentially a lot longer than, say, somewhere like in California, where I think there's already kind of talk that, um, you know, th- restrictions will, are gonna, going to be lifted. So it's interesting to hear that, you know, with the US Open, actually, they're looking to potentially move, potentially move locations. So, you know, I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Because, you know, you know, Indian Wells obviously missed out on having a tournament earlier this year in terms of a master series. And, you know, at the time they were probably thinking, you know, this is a total nightmare. You know, this is a complete disaster. But, you know, if, if for example, let's just say hypothetically this scenario were to happen, actually, they've kind of come out of it and it would they would come out of it in a in a better situation because, you know, they would have had a tournament, they would have they have a bigger tournament and, you know, it, you know, this sort of kind of contributions the, you know, the US Open would make to their local economy would be uh, an absolute boon for, you know, for an event that they didn't think was going to happen this year. I think it's um obviously sensible not to have the US Open in in New York if there is a safer alternative. And I think, you know, obviously the population density of New York is so much higher and that's really the epicentre of the outbreak in the States. But um, I do still question holding it in Indian Wells with with fans because the reason that, you know, one of the reasons they cancelled it, uh, cancelled Indian Wells at the start of, you know, March, middle of March, was because you know they did say in their local area you know area they have a lot of kind of elderly residents and they thought you know given the demographics of the area it wouldn't be you know safe to put the public health at risk so they didn't play you know the event then so why would having kind of a bigger event be any the wiser you know i know this is going to be what later in the year but it's kind of almost too early to say because we just don't know what's going to happen when kind of the lockdowns are are released and everyone kind of goes back to a socially distanced normal. It's just, I don't know. I just kind of think if, if it, even if it is in Indian Wells, they should probably go with a broadcast only option because I just think it would still be too risky. 
uh, or at least like what we just said earlier, only have domestic fans rather than international visitors to the area. Yes, I don't. I'm not sure at the moment if they've kind of discussed on, you know, would it be fans, uh, fans or no fans if they if they moved it to Indian Wells. But I do sort of agree with you. I think that yeah, ideal world, there would be fans there. But it's, you know, if it is broadcast only, that's, you know, that's better than, you know, no, no event at all. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you know, the US Open kind of come out who you know and backtrack on that's on the, you know, the sort of statements they were putting out kind of a few months ago because, you know, it feels like they've kind of realized that there's gonna be a big audience out there who are going to be wanting to watch live sport um, you know, further down the line. And the fact that we've all been kind of cooped up inside, being starved of, you know, live sport at the moment, I think they might have realized actually that's going to create a big appetite, big opportunity potentially to bring in, you know, new audiences, new tennis fans, because, you know, all these people are just kind of like, oh, I just want to watch some, I just want to watch some sport on some TV. And, you know, potentially the US Open might be the very, one of the very first big events for that uh, to happen with. I agree. I think if we're all so starved of live sport that, you know, if they do decide to play a broadcast only option, I will I will be there. Well, not there, but I will be there in at my TV watching every match, you know, um, to make the most of it because it's been it would have been a long time coming. Um, I think whatever sport starts off again first, I'm I'm going to try and watch it just just to tick that sort of sporting box. But we'll see what happens, Joel. Um, Perhaps their insurance, you know, wasn't quite as comprehensive as Wimbledon. So they are kind of thinking they have to play it in some capacity. And hence, you know, they're putting their thinking caps on now. But we need to give it time, I suppose. Um, but let's let's talk about Madrid, which would have been happening uh, this past week in an alternative universe. Uh <laughs> in a normal world. So we're going to look back, aren't we? Uh, I think about eight moments from the past, uh, well, past 20 years. Uh, I think the tournament actually only started in 2002. So we've got 18 years of highlights to kind of reflect on from Madrid. Do you want to start us off, Joel? Yes. Uh, yes. We are going to be looking back, take a trip down memory lane over the last 18 years or so at Madrid. And, you know, if we go back to the very beginning, you know, it, Madrid... Spain, you know, we associate that with, you know, a classic outdoor clay event, which it is now and I think has been since uh, 2008. But it, in its inception, Madrid was a indoor hardcore tournament. You know, it was on, I think it was later, later in the year. And um, our first kind of moment, my first moment actually, uh, is from a time when it was on a hardcore and it was in 2007. And it was... David Nalbandian, who became the only player uh, in history so far to defeat the big three, Federer, Nadal and Djokovic at the same tournament, which, you know, to think that actually happened, I, you know, I didn't, I just before researching this episode, I didn't actually realise that happened. So I feel like that's quite an underrated, quite an underrated achievement on the tour. And I think it just goes to show you that David Nalbandian on his day, he was a terrific player. And you just kind of feel that like, if he hadn't got injured so much, he, his achievements, I think would be a lot greater, I think, than, 
you know, a lot greater than than they ended up being. You know, he certainly for me is feels like he should have been at some point a Grand Slam champion. Um, but the fact that, you know, Madrid 2007, he beat Nadal, Djokovic and Federer and only dropped one set. Um, really, like really, really impressive. And, you know, something that, um, you know, something that should be celebrating, as I said, that is a very, very, very tall order. Absolutely. I do remember him beating uh, Rafa because I it was such a sort of comprehensive scoreline. I think it was like 6-1, 6-2. And I was like, oh, OK. Because um, I know the two of them are sort of quite good friends, like at least at the time. Um, but I don't remember actually, I mean, until kind of this triggered it, I don't remember the fact that he had beaten, you know, Federer and Djokovic as well. But I suppose there wasn't really a big three then uh, because Djokovic was kind of, on the up, you know, he wasn't quite the Djokovic that we know now. So in hindsight, obviously, we can appreciate the significance of this moment. But at the time, yes, it would have been a big thing to beat Federer and Nadal, but maybe not so much Djokovic as well. Um, but also, interestingly, Joel, he beat um, Del Potro and Thomas Burditch as well. So, And also Arno Clement, um, no offence to him, but the other five players he beat are a slightly higher calibre. <laughs> so, yeah, really insane kind of performance to kind of go all the way. And was that possibly his only Masters title that he picked up? Well, I, I do remember he won others. the... He won the tennis Masters Cup, I think, when it was in Shanghai. Because okay. I remember he beat he beat Federer over five sets. Um, so I think he won like the end of season event. Um, I think it was even in the preceding year potentially. But um, yeah, I just think that he just had like an absolutely he had a draw from hell, didn't he? <laughs> uh, you know, four four Grand Slam champions, uh, Thomas Burditch. You know, just an absolute horror draw. And yeah, he just kind of. Just kind of came through it, and um, you know, I think at the time, as you said, Federer, it was kind of a big two. More, it was like a Federer and Nadal sort of dominance, and Novak Djokovic was still kind of finding himself to an extent. But I think that you know, Djokovic was still world number three, and I found a little stat here that he became only the second player since Boris Becker in 1994 to beat the top three players in the world at the same event. So it just shows you that that was such a, such a historically kind of uh, impressive moment that sort of is, you know, I think part of his legacy. And, you know, I think with now Bandy and I've, particularly for British fans, I think a lot of people will remember him for that outburst in the, you know, the Queens final mm. where he got disqualified <laughs> Which is a shame because, you know, on his day on a tennis court, he was absolutely, you know, fantastic to watch. And he was, you know, unbeatable, unplayable. And, you know, Madrid 2007 was probably the crowning glory, crowning, the crowning glory of that. Yeah, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that it takes one moment of madness to tarnish sort of a whole <laughs> career and your reputation. It's, it reminds me a bit of um, Zidane's headbutt in the, was it the World Cup final that year? Um but yeah, no, absolutely. Nalbandian, probably a very underrated player. A, a bit like David Ferrer, you know, could have gone on won a lot more, actually, if he hadn't have been around at, at a time of, you know, the the two, you know, greatest or well, three greatest players of all time. Um, he, he could take that to his tombstone. That, <laughs> he could have that on his tombstone, I think. that That's just how good that uh, that result is. So well, Better uh, that than so, uh, yeah. the umpire, uh, the, the line judge incident. So, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm sure he'd rather we talk exactly. about this moment <laughs> than that one. Um, but, Joel, that, that leads me on um, to perhaps 
well, this could be the most famous Madrid moment that people remember, actually, over the, the past two decades. It's when when they had blue clay. And I, I feel like, you know, this is a moment, not so much for the actual tennis that happened on that blue clay, but just the significance of the fact that the clay was blue. Um, basically, in 2012, anyone that doesn't know, they decided to turn the red clay blue as a kind of... Well, I think it was a sponsorship thing primarily, but also they said it would benefit uh, television viewers because you could see the yellow tennis ball much more clearly against the blue clay. Um, But it didn't go down very well. A lot of players reported that it was far too slippery. Uh, Rafa lost earlier than he would normally. Well, I mean, Djokovic also um, lost early. Federer ended up winning the tournament. Um, so Fed fans, I'm sure, loved the blue clay. But yeah, it sparked quite a lot of tensions. It was a, a quite a lot of feathers ruffled by this, Joe. I mean, what do you remember <laughs> of the blue clay? Yeah. I mean, it was such an infamous... I think it was more of an infamous moment than anything else because we've never seen... I think we've never seen anything like it. I remember at the time as a tennis fan, seeing it on TV and just thinking, is is this for real? Is this actually happening? You know, I've heard of obviously red clay. You know, I think there's green clay as well on like the WTA tour. But the idea of blue clay, you know, it was just it just sounds very um, it just sounds bonkers. And I'm no Nadal. I think was quoted at the time saying, "I don't see red grass, so I don't like blue clay." And <laughs> quite right. I, I kind okay. of agree with him. Visually, it's just very striking, and I do wonder, you know, at the time whether I feel like there was a time when blue. Blue was a real trend for, uh, was really in vogue for tennis courts because, you know, the Australian Open turned blue, the US Open turned blue. And I do wonder if organisers kind of looked at looked at that and felt that, you know, blue as a colour for a fan, I agree, is kind of the best contrast um, with a yellow tennis ball. Uh, and they almost kind of like transferred what they'd done for a hard court onto a clay court. But you know, it, it felt like it was something that the organisers wanted far more than the players. And, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, and I think there are, you know, there are other players as well who just came out and said, you know, tennis has traditions. Clay as a tradition is played on red clay, um, not blue. And I'm pretty sure Nadal went as far as to say if they have blue clay back next year, I'm not playing. And that's obviously going to be the, the you know the one thing the sponsors and the, the tournament organizers don't want is is Rafa not turning up. So I'm not surprised they went back to Red Clay the following year. Um much to the dismay of Fed fans because he is now the goat of blue clay <laughs> for that one win. Do you want to see do you want to see Blue Clay back though? Tennis fans, tennis sisters, do you want to see it back? Because I I I think that it was kind of I think it was kind of nixed too early. I think they should have, I don't think they should have kind of introduced it as some like big, you know, master's level event. I think maybe they should have maybe tested it out on, you know, the challenger circuit or or something or, or, or had some sort of testing phase because the fact that it's only been used at one event, it's created a sort of novelty factor to it. And now I'm kind of a bit like, I could see it, on an exhibition like in an exhibition you know but on a tour level you know is it actually going to be taken taken seriously um but i do i there is a part of me that does want does want to see it back on the tour 
uh listeners let us know what you think um because yeah for me i just i just think it just looks quite cool on on tv and you know if the players hate it so be it but uh, you know i kind of liked it but joel you've got to keep the players happy (laughs) um actually though we should just (laughs) say in america they have green clay don't they um on some of their clay court events and that is a natural green clay it's not been artificially died um, but I do remember there was a pink clay court that I think was just done as like a promo sort of charity thing um, I think it was at Roland Garros for like Women's Day or something um, or kind of breast cancer one of those kind of uh, initiatives I'm sure it was just trying to have a look I, it was actually the same year it was 2012 um, they unveiled a pink clay court but it wasn't um, I don't think they use it, you know, competitively. I think they might have just had an exhibition on it or something. Um, so it didn't cause quite so much disruption <laughs> as the blue clay. Although interestingly, um, you know, people were moaning that the blue clay was slippery that year uh, at Madrid. Uh, another theory was that actually it was just uh, the the conditions were just wetter than normal. You know, they'd had a bit more rain than they usually had, and they they'd struggled with drainage at the site for the last couple of years. So. People were kind of making, some people were making the argument that it wasn't because of the blue clay. It was other factors to present a balanced argument there. <laughs> yes. And I think blue clay, I you know, blue clay, what next? Could we have a blue grass court? I'd love to see that. Ooh. I'd love to see that. <laughs> well, we could go to a red possible? grass court. And, uh, Is that even possible? Know. Or red grass, I'd love that. We should get more, I think we should get more kind of bonkers with our sort of mix and match of colours and surfaces because I do feel like there is a collective like group that you know tennis courts are on the tour and i do wonder if there is an opportunity to kind of maybe mix mix it up a bit who knows use the next gen finals as a place to kind of experiment and and test well if we haven't uh... had any if we have no slams at all this year joel they'll have to create some like fusion one where they have a quarter of each court (laughs) like for all the different set well okay half half the court would be hardcore and then you'd have a a quarter grass and a quarter clay and that would be weird what shoes would you wear You had that exhibition, uh, you know, I think, you know, over kind of 10, I think 10 years ago, I think between Federer and Nadal, where they had half a grass court, half a clay court, which was, which was great. I'm pretty sure they, they switched shoes, they switched their shoes uh, on the, on the changeover. But um, I'd love to see maybe, who knows, a red clay, blue clay hybrid, get Federer, go to blue clay and Nadal, obviously go to red clay, battle it out. Either way, I suppose the clay still goes all all over the place, and you know, instead of red streaks, you'd just have blue streaks everywhere, which would look a bit more odd, I suppose. Um, but yeah, let's let's move on, Joel. Um, I the the moment that I'm going to raise here, I don't know if you remember, but um, it, it <laughs> for as a Rafa fan, I think a lot of Rafa fans listening will remember this quite well. It was when Burdich uh, beat Rafa back in Madrid in. 2006 that was when it was on hard courts and um he shushed the crowd <laughs> which um caused a lot of sort of tension between Burdich and Rafa at the net and I think the press kind of were quite captivated by it afterwards and I remember um every time they played each other like for the next I don't know couple of years this was always brought up as kind of you know in their head-to-head in their in their rivalry um basically Thomas Burdich won 
the match 6376 was in the quarterfinals that year in, in 2006 and obviously the crowd you know being Spanish they were pro Rafa cheering for him as you would um but uh yeah as soon as Berdic won he he raised his finger to his lips and shushed the crowd um to kind of silence them you know after all the support they'd been giving to Rafa um and then obviously the Spanish fans did not like that so they sort of booed him off court um and Rafa said something to him at the net sort of saying you know that was not a good idea um for you to do that um and I mean obviously you know Burditch I'm sure would have expected the crowd to kind of be supporting his opponent as you would but I think he he just felt that they were over the top um whereas you know Rafa just said well they're, they're just being Spanish and supporting you know me their home player but it's for me it was just one of those moments that um I think that in the in the Rafa fan community, anyway, from what I remember, there was a lot of like aggro towards Burdich for this manoeuvre that he did for the, for him shushing the crowd. And it wasn't until a couple of years later when I think they kind of got on fine and it was all forgiven that it you kind of you've tended to forget about it. But I don't know if you remember that at all, Joel. I don't remember. I'm going to have to go on YouTube and search <laughs> it up. But uh, it sounds like Burdich was a marked man from yeah. that point on. Is he, is he on the kind of Nadal hit list along hit list. with Carlos a bit like Bernard- Lucas Russell along with- <laughs> and Carlos Bernardes. Oh god, yeah. Well, actually, I think um yeah, I mean it was just one of those things, you know. Obviously, I think Thomas Burdich was was quite young that they were both quite young obviously at the time. I'm I'm sure perhaps he he wouldn't have done that, you know, 8 years later for example that, that you know, you mature don't you as you go on. Um it's sort of a bit more of like a curious antic, I suppose. I'm comparing it to someone nowadays. Well, I was going to say that the 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 fact that he beat Nadal, uh, you, you know, you don't associate Burdich with kind of top three, uh, well, you know, exactly. big three player wins. He's got one of the worst records, I think, in history against like the very, very best. So, uh, you know, he was obviously trying to make the most of that moment because he knew for the rest of his career, he was just going to be kind of, thrashed off court basically i mean this was on this was when madrid was on the hard court so less surprising that he he beat rafa i suppose um especially as rafa on a hard court back in 2006 really had a lot of work to do to improve his game um but i do remember i just every time i think rafa played burdich after that match i was like oh gosh you know burdich has got his number (laughs) but um obviously (laughs) rafa kind of reversed that although you know, Burdich is still, you know, was always a quality player. And on his day, I think, you know, literally could be anyone. So, um, and obviously he retired last year, didn't he, Burdich, finally, after injury problems. So let's move on to our fourth uh, Madrid moment. And this is actually from the women's side because Madrid is a combined event. It is a master's level event uh, for the men, but it also is a premier mandatory, I think, for the women. And we're again going back uh, over a decade now ago to, you know, for me, it's a moment I think is tinged with sadness, Kim, because it's Dinara Safina's super clay season in 2009. She was world number one and she had a really epic, clay season I think she got to four finals and she won kind of the biggest title of her career at the time probably now to be honest as well at the you know at Madrid and you know she was playing really good tennis and you know she was kind of really in form you know during the clay court swing and she'd already been in the Grand Slam final in in you know in Australian Open and I think she'd risen to kind of world number one and it felt like this was her moment and you know, Madrid was along that path to 
the French Open and Roland Garros, where you just felt that you know it was written in the stars for Safina to to come out and win it and kind of break her duck in terms of like Grand Slam titles. And you know she went into that she went into she went into that French Open, you know probably one of the favourites. Got to the quarterfinals, I think. You know, I was reading. Got to the quarterfinals, having only dropped like fifteen games, but and managed to get to the final. But you know, didn't wasn't able to kind of get it over the line. Yeah, I remember watching that final uh, against Kuznetsova at Roland Garros with Safina because she was like my favourite women's player at the time. Because um, I think the year before, in two thousand and eight at Roland Garros, Safina had been like pretty much down in like almost all of her matches and had made these like epic comebacks. And I think I just that really endeared her to me, and I sort of started following her more because of that. Um, so, and in that final. In 2008, she kind of lost quite comfortably to Ivanovic. So, you know, a year later, she's had this amazing run on the clay, got to like all of the clay core finals, um, which I think she's the only player to have done that to, to make all four of them, which is amazing in itself. Um, so she won Madrid. I think she also won Rome. But yeah, she gets to the Roland Garros final, you know, steamrolls her way through the tournament and then comes up against Kuznetsova in the final and loses in straight sets. And all her slam finals, three in total, she lost them all in straight sets because she just mentally, like, just couldn't do it. She just choked massively. She just couldn't put her game together in the final, which is just such a shame because she is one of those players that you think really ought to have, you know, managed to get one slam under her belt. But it's just the way. Especially as a world number one as well, because you're always going to have you know, that monkey on your back is like, yes, you're world number one, but have how many Grand Slam titles you want? And, you know, a lot of players will come out and say, you know, for me, rankings aren't important. You know, titles are more important, namely, you know, Grand Slams. And you know, I think that was kind of one of the issues with kind of Safina is that, you know, at that time, she was going through a real purple patch. I think she got to eight finals um, over kind of the 2009 season, including two Grand Slam finals, she made the semi-finals in Wimbledon as well. But let's we'll talk about that in a sec. But um, you know, she's going through a real purple patch. It's just a shame that I think that you know the biggest career, you know, the biggest title of her career is the Madrid Open because you feel like it shouldn't be that. It should have been should have been the French Open in 2009. Um, and you know, it was just kind of. Um, yeah, it's just a, yeah, it's a bit sad because you know from that point on, you know after the French Open, it kind of did spiral down a little bit, and you know we kind of go on as I said to kind of Wimbledon, Kim, semi-finals, Venus Williams, world number one. You go lose Love and one. It's not a great look, is it for the for the tour for you know the world number one player? Yeah, I think she had a lot of issues around you know people thinking she wasn't a credible player to be number one in the world. Um... And obviously, I think that probably didn't help in the fact that she wasn't then able to cross the finish line at slams at all. She didn't even get into a winning position. You know, she lost all her finals in straight sets. And I just, that was really her time. That was that was kind of her moment. And although, you know, interestingly, in, in Madrid, um, she beat Wozniacki in the final. And obviously, Wozniacki, similar kind of story, really. World number one, hadn't won a slam at that point. Again, people were sort of saying the same things like, mm, you know, w- will we really remember you, you know, if you don't win a slam um, in the same way as, you know, it's not the same as just being world number one. And obviously years later, Wozniacki, you know, finally did get a slam. So you sort of think, oh, maybe if Safina had carried on going for a bit longer, she might have eventually had her day in the sun. Um, I think injury really 
did her in in the end. I think it was her back because actually two years later she retired. And I think actually the last match of her career was in Madrid. So I think it's quite a symbolic place for her actually. And and also I think she she trained a lot in Spain. I think well, she speaks fluent Spanish. I think she spent a lot of her time there. So, you know, it's obviously quite nice for her. It's kind of like her adopted country, if you like. So I think the tournament and her are kind of going to be, I guess, forever sort of intertwined somewhat because of those moments. Okay, we are back uh, for some more moments from Madrid in our trip down memory lane. And again, we're going to be going back to 2009 now uh, for a men's match, which for me, Kim, involves one of your favourite players. Well, your favourite player. and I don't know who that is. Who <laughs> and, is that? <laughs> and for me, I, I want to say this is my favourite match between Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic on a tennis court bar maybe that Australian Open final. Um, they played in the Madrid semi-final and Nadal came out vi- in victorious 3-6, 7-6, 7-6. He won 11-9 in the final set tiebreak. It was it was a match that went over four hours. It was just a really high quality, it was just a really high quality tennis match. And I think it is on that list of not only best matches uh, not only best matches in the rivalry between Nadal and Djokovic, I just think this is just one of the best matches that was <laughs> that has been played, you know, on the ATP tour because it was just so good. Because I think you know Djokovic was really kind of at this point, you know, really he really understood how you played Nadal, and you know coming off that match, he he felt that he was playing some of the best tennis he'd ever produced, and I think he'd won he won more points that day even, but. Nadal was just, just found some way to to get it over the line. Yeah, I I remember actually this match. I was watching it, uh, sort of stuck at my computer, watching it on a stream, and I was thinking, my, my gosh, this is going on and on and on. This is such a you know a long tough battle, and I was I was so into it. It was it was fantastic. I think you know, arguably, yeah, it is the best three set match there ever was. One could say, and actually, you know, on our last episode, Joel, we were talking about our favorite matches, and this would certainly be a a contender for for that but um I, weirdly I know this might sound a bit out there I remember this match because it was the day of the Eurovision Song Contest that year um in 2009 so I have sort of an association going on there but um yeah it was interesting because 2009 this was the season that obviously Rafa lost to Robin Sodling at Roland Garros so um wasn't yeah and I think well that clay season didn't go so well uh, you know as it went on and and actually this tournament, uh, Rafa lost the final the next day to to Federer. So um, obviously this match must have taken so much out of him, you know, four hours long. You know, although you're Rafa Nadal, it's, you know, it still had an impact. Yeah, it, it was that season where I think kind of Novak Djokovic really kind of showed, um, you know, really kind of pushed Nadal to the limit on a tennis court, on a clay court in the clay season. And the impact of it was ultimately, I think, further down the road at Roland Garros, you know, Nadal, uh, you know, Nadal only made the fourth round, lost to, lost to Robin Sodling. I think matches like this really kind of took its toll on him um, and, you know, had a, oh yeah, as you said, a physical impact that meant that, you know, he, I didn't think he had as much left in the tank when it got to Roland Garros as, as say some of the other seasons where he kind of, you know, was able to kind of coast to kind of victory. But, you know, the fact that he was kind of able to put on these matches is just absolute delight, you know, delighting the crowds. And 
um, you know, it is one of those rivalries that has certainly, you know, is certainly delivered at Grand Slam level and it delivered, you know, it's delivered on the tour, you know, the, in the tour tournaments as well, um, you know, in the best of three set format. And, you know, I can, I can think of, of, you know, I can think of other matches, but kind of this one, clay court, you know, Nadal's kind of back, you know, back garden in, um, you know, in Madrid uh, against Novak Djokovic. I mean, that really kind of, you know, sets it up and it was something that definitely delivered. But uh, yeah, again, listeners, let us know. Do you think that was one of the best matches ever on the, the ATP circuit? Are there any others? You know, maybe even think there are other uh, Nadal versus Djokovic matches that have that are better than that. But uh, yeah, let us know. We'd be interested. We'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Let's move on to our next memory. I think we've got three more left for our listeners. Um, so this next one actually is a bit of a bit of a breakthrough win. It was in 2014, and it concerns Dominic Team, who came up against uh, Stan Wawrinka. Team was a 20-year-old Austrian qualifier at the time. Of course, nowadays we know him. Uh, you know, he's a very accomplished player. You know, he's not obviously won a Grand Slam just yet, but, you know, we feel like it's on the cards, especially on a clay court where he's, you know, really, um, you know, he is really hard to to live with. And, you know, in Madrid in 2014, he came up against Stan Wawrinka and, and just showed you some of those qualities, you know, we've we've seen, for, you know, in the, in the years ahead. And he came out, he came out in a winnering and a bit of a topsy-turvy match, actually. 1-6, 6-2, 6-4. But I think, you know, that day it kind of showed you, you know, on the circuit. Yes, we've been talking about the big two. Then we were talking about the big three been talking about the big four but actually there are other players kind of knocking about as well and that's not just Stan Wawrinka there's Dominic Team as well. Yeah it's um it's interesting isn't it to look back like what six years ago now and, and see when these players that were now you know up at the top of the game sort of emerged onto the scene and at the time you sort of maybe missed some of these moments because you don't it's only with a bit of hindsight and reflection that you can kind of appreciate the significance of the, of them. Um, this was pretty much his breakout season, um, you know, on the ATP tour. And as you said, it, he was a qualifier in, into Madrid. Um, but it's weird, you know, he's a bit like a baby Stan, isn't he? They have a, a very, you know, similar game, the one-handed backhands. So it's a bit like watching yourself down the other end of the court. And um, yeah, just the way that he came back against Stan, who was world number three at the time. And, you know, newly kind of crowned Australian Open champion as well uh, to come back after Monte losing Carlo that first... Monte Carlo champion as well. Well, yeah, and Monte Carlo. Uh, to come back, you know, from losing that first set 6-1 and, and to kind of win in a fairly comfortable scoreline after that uh, in the second round was obviously a notable win. Um, perhaps up there with the likes of, you know, with, we've done a sort of memory lane at Monte Carlo. I remember Gasquet beating Federer, you know, these sort of emergent storylines that that come on uh to the scene and uh especially i think really because this was the the moment really when stan was i guess at, at one of his peaks i know he's a quite a, a player that can kind of come on and off and have multiple peaks but um this was kind of the first time that he was really putting it all together that season and to, to then beat him as a sort of young upstart i think that that makes it all the more memorable really yeah and team you know it showed his attacking qualities and i i think you know the i think the way we kind of talk about dominic team now is the fact that he can bring it he can bring an attacking game to any you know any tennis player whatever kind of their ranking is and 
you know, with a single-handed backhand, it was just so it was just so interesting. It was always kind of refreshing to watch, you know, two players with single-handed backhands kind of duel against each other and it was a bit like, you know, Stan Wawrinka playing someone who's like younger, um, but in the same mould as him kind of, uh, you know, coming up. And it just showed you, uh, you know, the sorts of player that can, you know, that can live, you know, in the top ranking. You, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a double-handed backhand. You can have a single-handed backhand and Wawrinka and Dominic Team are kind of our proof of that. So, yeah, Joel, uh, I don't know if you remember, but in 2018, uh, Petra um had a, a flying season, I suppose. And what made it so poignant uh, was the fact that it was off the back of that horrible knife attack that she'd suffered. And uh, so the Madrid Open that year, Kvitova was the champion. Um, it was a pretty good final against Kiki Burton's three-set match, almost three hours long. Um, but perhaps most symbolic because Kvitova has the most number of titles Um than you know any other female player she's won three madrid opens and you know this season she well she went on quite a roll in 2018 she she picked up uh well this was her fourth trophy of the season um she was on an 11 match winning streak at this time so in such a, a lot of you know such good form and i think it was just so nice to be able to kind of witness this because you know off the back of that knife attack she didn't know if she'd even be able to play tennis again um, so to come back and achieve sort of such a good season and, and to win Madrid, you know, for the third time, and this would have been the first time she'd won Madrid, you know, after the attack. Um, for me, this is a nice, memorable occasion to kind of reflect back on because, you know, I think Kvitova, like, yeah, she's won her two slams at Wimbledon, but perhaps we sort of gloss over the fact that she has consistently been at the top of the game for a long time now and picked up an awful lot of of premier mandatory titles as well. And uh, I think this event just kind of goes to show that, really, um, this final against Burton's back in 2018. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, she will be closely associated with uh, exploits in Madrid. And I think what was so great was that she, I think she wasn't almost kind of expecting herself. She had won, I think she had won in Prague the previous week. So she was going into that event, you know, going into Madrid quite tired and feeling exhausted. And, you know, just shows you her kind of technical ability was just there and able to kind of get her through when perhaps her body was kind of, you know, she was feeling it kind of in terms of you know, physical exertions. The fact that, you know, her technical ability was able to kind of get her over the line just shows you what, a, you know, what a fighter that she is against someone like Kiki Burton's who, you know, I was still kind of going through, um, you know, she was kind of going up the rankings at the time. I think she ended up, uh, you know, 15th in the world after, after losing to Kvitova in that final. But, um, you know, it was a great, it was a great moment. I just think what was quite funny about it was the, the trophy, the women's trophy, Kim, um, that Kvitova was holding for that. I don't know if it's still the same one now. It's quite bizarre. It looks like a, it looks like a tick, like a, a plus, a correct sign. A Nike tick. Yeah, I, I, I've not really noticed that. I've picked up on that before, but it, it's, I, I don't know if it's like an architectural styled, uh, uh, design I, I don't know it's it's a bit odd but um yeah perhaps actually one week we could do like top 10 trophies in tennis or something <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it's, it's interesting actually because Kvitova you know she's won Madrid three times obviously had a, a really good um you know clay season as well this year but she's only ever actually got to the semi-finals at Roland Garros so it's, it seems a, it seems like she could you know she could easily win Roland Garros obviously we associate her with mm. her Wimbledon victories but she's certainly got the game to win on all surfaces and um you know, it's just uh, kind of 
surprising perhaps that she hasn't um done a bit more at Roland Garros over the years. Um and also just the note on Kiki Burton's, you know, last year I think Kiki Burton's won Madrid, didn't she? So she sort of um obviously Yeah, she avenged her she avenged her defeat actually, I think, to Kavitova. Ah, um yes, during during right. that run. Um but yeah, it was a it was a long cry from uh, their meeting at Wimbledon, like a few years before, um, uh, before 2018, when uh, Kvitova won Love and won oh. in thirty in thirty five or so minutes on centre court. So uh, you know, Kiki Betters, yeah, as you said, kind of a bit of a bit of a fighter, was able to kind of bring her A game to Madrid. But yeah, Kvitova kind of showing us that she is the queen of Madrid when it comes to um, the women's tour. So um, yeah, that was kind of a, another a moment for us. And a kind of final moment again is, uh, um, is specifically not not necessarily for history, but for, for match and sort of build up and context. I don't think it can get more juicier than this, Kim. And I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a good moment to end on. And it is, of course... 2017 Eugenie Bouchard beating Maria Sharapova in a you know one of probably one of the matches of the season I think you know it was a real kind of tussle Bouchard came out 752664 as the victor but really kind of the the backdrop for this was the comments in the media that Bouchard had made around the fact that she effectively felt Sharapova was a cheater because of her you know her drug scandal and that she should have been served a lifetime ban and you know these comments came out before this match and it really just added it added a lot of spice and added a lot of interest to see to see how this was going to go. And I think for me, as a time as a fan, you know, I was I was kind of looking at Bouchard, thinking, you know, she's she's going to be punching here if she wins because you know she was, uh, you know, she wasn't. I think she might have been in the top hundred at the time, but she certainly wasn't reaching the exploits of you know Wimbledon Grand Slam final and. You know, it just surprised me when I saw the result, and I was kind of like, "Oh, this is, oh, yeah, this handshake is definitely <laughs> going to be interesting." Yeah, because it was, um, yeah, because I think Bouchard, even though she had said that, you know, these comments in the, you know, preceding it, I've still felt like she went into that match as the underdog. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think they lauded this at the time, like the media and everything, as like a victory over drug cheats. You know, and <laughs> justice has been served because. You know, Bouchard's beaten Sharapova uh, because she said, you know, a lot of other players were kind of wishing her luck and sort of saying, oh, well done, you know. And obviously they agreed with what Bouchard had said about Sharapova, I suppose. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's really just, I guess, significant because of the comments that were made. And and I'm sure actually that, that spurred Bouchard on because she was probably, you know, added that extra bit of motivation and sort of aggro that she needed to to come through it. Because um, obviously, sadly, three years later, Bouchard is is not up in the the top of the game, and obviously, Sharapova's retired. But it hasn't hasn't led to anything more for Bouchard, has it? This yeah, it, match. <laughs> and it's it's kind of annoying actually, because I remember again as a fan when the I, I was watching it, and you know, Bouchard coming out as a victor, I thought, oh, is this going to be the second rise of of Bouchard? But it, I feel like you know historically kind of looking back on it it feels annoyingly a bit frustratingly almost kind of like a, a false dawn because as you said you know I think she's still got a, a little bit of a way to go to get back to kind of you know where she was and you know this was a sort of this was sort of a, a you know this was uh you know arguably kind of the second highest point she got to after 
you know, after getting to the Wimbledon final. Yeah, I think in terms of kind of the the fame and the significance of, of a victory, yeah, probably it's, it's up there, you know, just under her, her Wimbledon 2013, I think it was. Um, I liked the fact that... Um, when Sharapova was asked about Bouchard's comments, she just said that she was way above responding. I just classic Sharapova. Um, yeah, I, I, this is quite an interesting thing to finish on. Um, I mean, they're both they are both quite spiky competitors yes, who are, exactly. I guess, quite pol- who are, I guess, quite polarizing. But as you said, at the time, it did feel like a sort of win for the. You know, some people would say it would be it was a win for the. You know, people who felt that you know Sharapova maybe should have got a you know much a stricter sentence, and you know one of the parallels I can kind of think of in in other sports, it's it's sort of similar to you know Justin Gatlin versus Usain Bolt in mm-hmm. you know hundred meter World Championship finals. It's sort of that's it. It felt like that sort of matchup, and that's I guess what made it so intriguing um, to kind to kind of watch and and play out. And the fact that it went to three sets, it it. It, it lived up to the billing and it was kind of a, you know, it was just a, a great match. It was an entertaining match and, you know, it had the, it had the drama that, you know, I think the women's side does provide a bit more of than the men's side in terms of that sort of gossipy, you know, um, hearsay well, <laughs> that can kind of drive interest. It reminded me of um, Andreescu and, and was it Kerber who said that she was being a bit of a drama queen. It just sort of yeah. reminds oh, yes. me of that. Or I suppose it's all a bit like what Kyrgios was uh, going around saying about, um, you know, to Stan and uh, all that. Anyway, we're, we're going down Gossip Alley here, so <laughs> perhaps we should steer clear of that. But yeah, listeners, let us know if... Perhaps you can think of other moments uh, that are similar where there's been a real kind of edge and tension uh, to the match because of something that was perhaps said off court. Um, yeah, let us know what, what you would suggest for that one. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, that wraps it up for this episode of our trip down memory lane with the Madrid event. Um, yeah, let us know if you've got any other moments we you think we've missed off our list. You can, of course, contact us on social media at Passing Shop Pod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can email the show as well, passingshoppod at gmail.com. Remember, if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us, make sure to click that subscribe button and uh, leave us a rating if you've been enjoying listening to us on Apple Podcasts. But for now, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this latest episode of The Passing Shot. We'll be back next week no doubt with another episode i think we potentially might be doing another trip down memory lane with rome so i hope you can join us for that but for now thanks for listening and goodbye planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.